Welcome to Just to Know You, the podcast that interviews regular people at SAES and finds out they are far from regular. That's right. I'm your host, Darian Batten. And I'm Angela Kerskadden. Let's get started. All right. Welcome, welcome, Just to Know You listeners. I have with me our special guest, Mr. Zion Russell. He's been an advocate for seven years, but he is has joined Dahran this year, teaching math and science and also robotics. And we're so happy to have you. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Zion. Hey, you bet, man. Thanks for having me on. Uh, how has your journey to Saudi Aramco expatriate schools unfolded? All right. Well, we were sitting, uh, my wife and I graduated. Uh, I got my master's in teaching in New York and she got her law degree. And we were looking at places to move to and I'd, commercial fish for 10 summers up in Alaska. All the, the men in my family are all commercial fishermen up there. So like that show, Deadliest Catch, that's that's us. And uh, there was 10,000 people taking the New York bar exam, and there were 40 people taking the Alaska bar exam. And I was like, hey, you want to go to Alaska for a year? And so one year turned into 10. And so we were up there about 10 years, and my wife is from Turkey. And so getting to Turkey was a, a bit of a hike from there, uh, just because of geography. And so we were looking to move closer to her family. Uh, her father passed, so we were looking to move actually to Turkey. And so I went down to the Northern Iowa State Teacher Fair uh, and was looking to get some jobs in Turkey. And all of a sudden, like last minute show up, this company called Aramco was there to hire people. And so I thought I'd go in and, and they'd be my warm-up interview before I started interviewing with the Turkish schools. And so I go in and meet the guys. Uh, it's Brad Goth and, and Danny, and had a good time with them. Said, you know, thanks guys, but I'm I'm already going to the school in Turkey. Uh, it's <laughs> nice to meet you though. And uh, interviewed with a couple other schools around the Middle East, including the uh, Riyadh and Jeddah, and just had a really good time. And it was funny though because they were all like, "Who else are you interviewing with?" I was like, "I'm interviewing with Aramco." Like, well, when you're done with them, come see us. <laughs> and uh, the Jetta school was really tempting because they were looking for a physics teacher who could also teach robotics, who also wanted to open an engineering academy. And those are our three things I did up in Alaska with some help of some, some great coworkers and uh, leadership, some great uh, principals. So the Turkey thing kind of fell through just because of the way the climate was and the, they had the coup that following year. So um, we were sitting there and it was like, I remember calling my wife from Iowa. She's up with both kids at indoor soccer in the winter. And I was like, hey, how do you feel about Saudi Arabia? And she hung up. <laughs> and uh, I called her back and I explained the, the, the deal and how she'd be able. Our sons were young then. They were five and three. And one of her regrets is all of her older sisters have been able to stay home with their kids when they were growing up. And she was uh, a lawyer doing adult guardianship so she didn't have that opportunity and so moving to Aramco puts us four hours away from turkey and it put us in a position where she could stay home with the boys man look at you you checked all the boxes in your, in your marriage in one move i know right yes, I, <laughs> master craftsmanship uh, work out you know it's, it's you know it's a long play right it's a long play <laughs> we want to slowly unpack that because there are a lot of ma amazing aspects of your life that we want to dig into um so first Alaska. Alaska is like, you know, America, but a whole entity unto itself. You know, three times the size of Texas. We don't even think about it like that because it's not 
within the 48 continuous states. So Alaska, how is Alaska, question one, and two, how come you're not fishing? <laughs> uh, how's Alaska? Alaska's great, man. If you are looking to be active, it is an amazing place. And there's so much to do in the summer because it's so light. And then in the winter, you've got skiing and snowshoeing, cross country, and you got you know sledding and, and snowmobiling, all these different activities. Where if you're you want to live that adventure lifestyle, it's a it's a great place. One of the first things my wife and I did, I uh, was enter a snowshoe race. And I was like, the only rule is we can't finish last. We got we got at least beat someone. So and how'd know, you and how'd you do? We beat some one person. Yeah, I was like. I was sitting there, you know, my wife and I were starting to jog a little bit. I'm like, don't, don't let that person hear that music. Don't let them hear that chariots of fire music. Keep going, keep going. And, uh, <laughs> and so that was, that was a lot of fun. We had a great time up there, met some great people. Um, and then not fishing. My dad, uh, was, he commercial fished 40 years and, you know, my uncle Russ commercial fished 40 years. My cousins all commercial fished. And the one thing my dad said is that he had said, I don't want you uh, in this lifestyle because he was gone six to seven months a year commercial fishing. But like the sea was in his blood. I mean, it's one of those old sailor types. And, uh, you know, really to this day, like whenever we go out to the beach, he just sits in a chair and chills. And that was that was his element. Yeah, he's been up the Yukon River four times and he's been all the way up to Nome, Alaska, up on the north coast, probably 20 times. He's done the inside passage probably 20 times to 30 times. And he's, yeah, he is an old boat captain, man. Now, do you feel that in your blood? Do you feel the calling of the sea or of the water? Yeah, I spent 10 summers uh, on the water with him in one winter. And I definitely feel it. But I also think it's one of the reasons I became a teacher is because I knew that I'd have, when my kids were off school, I'd be off school. So we could all hang, you know, in that aspect. You know, stemming from not having that time with my dad, I think really played a role in, in what career I chose. Uh, but also gave me a really cool opportunity to go up and uh, be with him for, you know, two and a half, three months every summer. You know, that was just him and I, once I turned 14, and I could be on the insurance for the boat. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was up there, man. And really? it was awesome. Yeah. And were you part of, like, did you participate in commercial fishing? Yeah. No, that's what I did for 10 summers and uh, one winter. Like you worked on a commercial fishing vessel. Yeah, I worked on probably, gosh, maybe eight or nine different boats, all the way from like little 10 meter uh, gill netters to, you know, 150 foot, 170 foot crabbers. And what was that like? It was really interesting. You got to be, you get to know people really well. Uh, when you're, you know, four people or three people on a little 35 foot boat, you, you get to know people well. And then they're all characters. Like they are, the, the names of the guys I worked with were Machine Gun Kip and Vampire <laughs> Bill, you know, and then it was, you know, and they were, they, there's a reason they had those names and it was, <laughs> it was a really interesting to see people um, and see the kind of types of people that got drawn to those jobs, right? It's work hard, get paid well, go blow it all real fast, come back out for the next season. You know, a month later, you're back, you got to work again because you blew your money through. Um, and so that aspect was interesting as a 14 year old to see that. And then the other aspect I'd say was just the beauty. I mean, you're up in bays and bites on the coast that, you know, a handful of people have been to in their, in the history, you know, of, of motorized vehicles. Anyway, I know that indigenous people have been up there for a lot longer, but 
uh, it was just gorgeous. And being up there when there's, you know, no sunset and just seeing the sun go from the left side to the right side and then back again, uh, that, that was a hell of a thing to, to do while you're working. And just like all of a sudden kind of look up and be like, oh, it's, it's, it's 2 a.m. and it's still sunny. And so that's, it's interesting that your dad invited you at such a young age into that experience because it seemed like he deemed it necessary for your development. I don't know if he deemed it necessary. I just wanted to get away from my mom. You know, that's, you know, her and I, when I was younger, we had a little bit of an adversarial relationship right. just because of my dad being gone. And, you know, we were mad at my dad, but, you know, we only had each other to take it out. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I was, you know, at the age of 12, I was working at a summer camp as a lifeguard. And so, so I was like already, you know, my summers, I was outside and I was you know, not out on my own because it was, you know, a summer camp, but I was out of the house. And so you've been working since 12. Yeah, but then I, before that, I ran a golf ball hustle. <laughs> so my, explain to us my, what a golf ball hustle is. Well, my buddies and I, we would, uh, <laughs> we live, we, we lived out in the woods. I mean, like the woods. And there was a really nice golf course, maybe a 20 minute bike ride from our house. So my buddy Chris and I, we would always roll out and the evenings and the mornings and go swim through the creek that went through the golf course. And we'd pick all the golf balls out that people had lost. And then we'd set up right next to the like ninth hole selling golf balls back for a quarter right? <laughs> or like the really nice ones, like 50 cents. And we even had like both deals, right? Like you buy the whole bag, it's only 10 bucks. And, and we were knee deep in ice cream and video games every summer. And, and eventually it got to the point where they hired like a teenage court course marshal in like a golf cart to come harass us. Yeah. And, then, and then we were just like, how about we just, you know, it was minimum wage in the the eighties. So we're yeah. just like, how about we cut you in on some? <laughs> you know, that just seems easier than you chasing us and us getting away from you every night. So did they we bite cut him you? in and yeah, yeah, oh yeah, we cut him in. He wasn't he was no dope. And uh <laughs> so we just, you know, cut him in. And then we ended up ended up like eight people in our crew who were hunting golf balls and <laughs> this guy was on the take and it worked out great for a couple summers, man. <laughs> so it seems like you've been hustling since your early ages. Uh, <laughs> I've been working. I've been how working. You, yeah. How do you apply the hustle to your classroom? No, no, no you don't have to answer. You don't have to answer that question. No, no. It's all right. It's it is just the idea that there's you know you can always be doing something. You know there can always you know when I, when someone says oh, I I couldn't do this. Ooh, you couldn't, or you just make make time for it, right? And then that's something that we teach. You know we're trying to teach teenagers, right? Is is there's a difference between I couldn't do it and I didn't do it. You know. I, I didn't make it. Well, you know, what time did you get home? I got home at 3.30. What time was football practice? 6.30. What did you do for three hours? Uh, well, you know, how about this morning? What time did you wake up? I woke up at 7.30. You're like, oh, hey. Well, there you go, right? It's a choice. Not necessarily I couldn't, but I didn't. For those of you just tuning in, we're with Mr. Zion, the Hustle Russell. And he, <laughs> he is... Uh, keying us into how he utilizes hustle within his classroom. That was my nickname when I was teaching uh, in New York. It was our hustle. Really? <laughs> yeah, I had some some really interesting characters in my class uh, that taught me a lot about teaching, especially at a young age. I was right out of uh, my undergrad with was physics, and then I was teaching in inner city New York for three years, and I uh, learned a lot, and was was honored to be named our hustle by a group of my students. <laughs> how, how was your teaching experience? Because this is before Alaska. 
How was your teaching experience in inner city New York coming from, um, you said New York City uh, Teaching College? It was, uh, it was uh, Syracuse, New York. So it was a little bit, a little bit, ah, of the yeah. but it was interesting because the Syracuse university is up on a hill and honest to goodness, there's railroad tracks and then the schools I was teaching in. And, and that was a big shock for me. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I think we had my 1600 students at my school. I think we had three students of color, maybe four. And so it was, uh, a really eye-opening experience for me as a kid, you know, as a young adult, because I had this view of America. I had this view of, you know, it's about how hard you work and, you know, it's a level playing field. And I realized when I went there, I was like, oh, this is, this is not a level playing field. This is far from that. And I didn't know that. And I think that was a, a good epiphany for me as a young man to see that and experience it. And I love teaching there. And it taught me a lot, man. It, my best friend during my grad school years, this guy named Chris, he graduated from the school we taught at. He went out on a basketball scholarship, got his degree in science and teaching, and he and I were in our master's program together teaching at his old high school. And, and that was a lot of fun. Yeah, he and I together, like we'd show up at master's courses and, you know, the, the other teachers there would have these amazing, beautiful science lessons just you're like, oh, that's just wonderful. And you just be like, that's not going to work in a classroom. You ever tried doing that? Are you kidding me? You know, and it's just great to have him there because he was super passionate. And he still teaches at the same high school he graduated from, Corcoran High School. And he's still there. Uh, and just, you know, because he's like, this is my neighborhood. It's where I grew up and I want to make it better. And I was just like, ah, yeah. You've told us that you moved around quite a lot. When you say the Pacific Northwest, what specifically do you mean? So for me, I grew up in a place called Bellingham, Washington, about an hour and a half north of Seattle, maybe 15, 20 minutes from the border of Canada. And there's a, it's a big fishing community, you got Bellingham Bay up there. Uh, so it's, it, you know, it was a great place for my dad to be, uh, put the boat there for the winter and work on it, or in the off-season to work on it um, when it wasn't being used. So you fly from the West Coast all the way to the East Coast. Oh, we drove. No, we drove. You drove? Yeah. Yeah, I was like, I was, as my wife was, uh, she was, was my wife at the time, and she said, I'm going to law school in Syracuse. And I was like, well, I guess I'm going to grad school over there, too. <laughs> and I was like, that was like this, the, the point when I realized, like, that was the, the woman I was going to marry. I was like, that's it. She's going, uh, I'm going. Smart man, smart man. Uh, and yeah. so you, you go there, and then you say, you know what? We're going to go to Alaska. So did you drive, or did you, did you well, fly? The, so my wife and I got married in Turkey. And while we were doing that, her passport got stolen. And so I actually flew back to the States by myself and then drove from Syracuse, New York, up to Anchorage, Alaska with my Honda Civic and a U-Haul trailer. <laughs> and it got a little sketchy a couple places. I'm not going to lie. The Alcan, the Alaska Canada Highway, a couple places then started slipping backwards on some mud. I was like, that's it. Yeah. It's been a good run. <laughs> well, if anybody is out there looking for a car, Honda Civic, just know you heard it here first. Very, very reputable brand will get you from <laughs> New York to Alaska. <laughs> with just looking trailer. at me with towing this trailer, like, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody talk to him. <laughs> Who is towing a trailer bigger than their car? <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. So from the Pacific Northwest to New York, then to Alaska, and then to Saudi Arabia. Of those places, 
which has been the most difficult um, place to live in? Why was it a struggle? Oh, man. Um, I think all, each one presents its own challenge. Like Pacific Northwest, wet and cold in the winter, right? So you just got to buy into that and ha- be okay with the gray days, right? And then Alaska, same thing. Like it is dark for three months and, you know, you maybe get a couple hours of light, but this doesn't get real warm. And then you've got, you know, snow on the ground for six to nine months out of the year. And it's, so if you, that can get wearing when, not so much when you're just uh, you and your spouse or uh, just you, but when you've got kids. And so, you know, the kids were growing up, we want to go outside. Okay. It's going to take us 10 minutes, to put on our big, we call them zoot suits, big, like giant onesies for kids that are like, you know, weatherproof. And so, you know, that was, I think, challenging. And then like looking ahead to sports and, and having activities, you know, my wife and I were okay going out hiking or, or camping in, you know, 20 degrees and negative 20 degrees. Uh, but boy, you know, we didn't feel the same way about having kids do them all. Uh, but on the other hand, the man, the spring, summers, and, and early fall are just gorgeous. There's these huge 5,000-acre parks out there called King and Kid Park. And we just took the kids out there, and we just, in the summer, we just walk. You know, we go out for our morning walk, go stop by the local Greasy Spoon, uh, Tasty Free is the name of it. <laughs> and uh and and hit that up on the way home and then you know ksa wasn't too big of a transition for us because my wife and i were muslim and so she's from turkey and i already learned turkish so learning the language wasn't going to be too hard uh and the biggest challenge i think for us here was the inconsistency right so like some things happen immediately and it's smooth and you're like this is phenomenal and then other things are like hey i need to get a new license plate Oh, it's going to be three months. You're like, wait, what? No, you got to talk to this guy. And this guy's going to have you go talk to the guy. You know, it's like, it's funny which things, you know, the more complicated things tend to be more fluid. I find like, I need a visa. I'm just going to go online, click. I got my visa. Whereas, you know, other stuff is like, oh, well, this is going to be more challenging. This is going to, how many people, you know, who, you know, <laughs> and so it's, you know, I think they each present their own challenge. Uh, I don't think anyone's harder than any other one because when we're here, it was beautiful being four hours away from Turkey. I think the first year, you know, every single long weekend, every single break, we went to Turkey to see that family. I'm always got five older sisters, so it's a big family. I'm an only child. And so that was just great. What about you, you uh, talked about going to Turkey um, quite often. What is it that you um, love about Turkey? I, for me, it's my family. You know, I've got five sisters-in-law, five brothers-in-law. I've got, I want to say somewhere between 13 and 16 nephews and nieces over there. And for me, it's just fun having a big family. I went from being a family of three to a family of like 33 when I got married. Yeah, and, I, and, and that was just great because they all care for each other. It doesn't matter if they're, they're yelling or, or screaming at each other. They, you know, they'd all give each other a kidney you know, in a heartbeat. So that was a nice part. And then uh, up there, in, in a lot of the ways, there's a, my wife's father was a farmer. And so it was a real, real simple. And... You know, there's a summer house up in the mountains, and it was like when I say summer house, I mean like if you wanted hot water, you had to go build a fire and heat up the water, and that just really appealed to me because of the Alaska stuff. I think that really, for me, was a, a simple way. I'm an Eagle Scout, so I always like camping. I always like the idea of being out there in nature, and uh, just yeah, I just love it. And the food's just stellar. <laughs> also, where specifically uh, does most of your family? Uh, my family's actually mostly from Madonna right now. There's, I've got a couple of nephews and nieces in Istanbul, um, but right around that area, they actually got hit by the earthquake the other week really? and, and yesterday. 
so, uh, and thankfully they're all okay. And that was a concern for a couple of days there, but uh, everyone's all right, which is nice. Uh, but yeah, Adana is the home region there, and then Istanbul is like secondary. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's good to hear. I'm, I'm happy to hear that everyone uh, is okay. Thanks, man. Tell us about your family. Um, so, you know, I told about my dad. He's a commercial fisherman. My mom was an occupational therapist in the school district for 40 years. Uh, so that's, you know, I definitely, that's where I got that, that teaching bug from, I think, in part. And I had a couple of great uh, teachers in high school that really inspired me. But I've got my wife. Her name is Navis. And she is Turkish. And she has a law degree in her second language, which for me always tells me just how smart she is. When I think, like, I'm pretty clever. I'm like, no, no, I'm not law degree in my second language i'm not you know an avogado in espanol i'm not a avocado in turkish you know i'm just yeah so uh and she is incredibly kind and warm and you know family for her is, is number one and i can really feel a lot and uh, she's just been great she works for ramco right now as well as a contract advisor and i can talk about it because it's february 20 something and it happened, but she just got done working on the contract for Zoom. Oh, really? Uh, for Ramco. That was, they announced at Leap and Ictiva. And uh, so she'd been working really hard. They sent her to London for a week and Dubai for a week. Real hard stuff. Yeah. You know? And uh, and so she's all done with that. And I'm just really proud of her and uh, professionally and personally and as a mom and all that jazz. You know, anything yeah. any husband would say about their wife, right? Yeah. So, well, any husband who doesn't want to get in trouble. And. <laughs> Uh, and then I got two boys. I've got Khan and Karai. Yeah. They're 12 and 10. And I've got my little Michaela. She's two. Oh, man. Man, that's awesome. So you have three. Uh, yeah, I've got three. Yeah. And I was worried about three because, like, I'm like, once you get three, they're like velociraptors. <laughs> One distracts you from the front, and the other two come in on the side, right? And I'm like, yeah. you know, there's two of us. We can tackle two of them. We can hold them down. <laughs> and there's three. Someone's getting double teamed. Yeah. You know, I'm just, it's three is different. Three changes the game. Three, <laughs> three changes the game. <laughs> and it's funny because, like, I remember her uh, her OB back in the States, I had taught her her three kids, and she told us, don't have three. The third one's, third one's just a mess. And I'm like, no, that's fair. I've had all three, and that third one, he is a mess. You know? <laughs> like, mom and dad just threw the talent. Nope. <laughs> but, no, Michaela's. it's really nice to have uh, Michaela around. You know, she's uh, the older boys, you know, that being tw- 10, 12, they can help out a lot. And they get to be that older brother. And that's really cool. It, it's awesome when you can have a uh, a family here and support of it kind of, you know, balances things out. And you, you have a strong you know foundation to go out there and do, you know, what you need to um, to do. Man, you talked a little bit about your friend uh, that attended with you. I believe his name was Chris. Yeah. Yeah. You talked about Chris and how you, he just helped you kind of look into those neighborhoods and see new things and um, places. Tell me about uh, someone who has helped you become uh, the person you are uh, today. I mean, there's a lot of places to go there, right? I, there's obviously the family, but I think I would single out uh, my wrestling coach. So I wrestled in middle school and high school and uh, did well and was offered a scholarship at university. And that's all just because of uh, the head coach we had. And he never yelled once, you know, four years I was on his team. I didn't hear him yell once. And he was an AP English teacher and just really well thought out and just um, discussed how like it's going to take hard work. Like wrestling, I always appreciate it because it's one-on-one team sports. 
I'd always get angry because there's someone on my team who maybe didn't want as much or didn't want to work as much or wasn't tough enough. And in wrestling, you know, there's a team score, but it's an individual competition. And so that what he taught me as an athlete and as a person, as a young man, was wildly important, especially because at that time, my dad wasn't home in the winter, so he couldn't watch me wrestle. And so he was kind of you know, in loco parentis at that point. And I think one of the, the best things he taught me was I, my junior year, I'd gotten third at a tournament, and I was just angry. And I was disappointed. And I'd won like 16 matches in a row, and then I came in here and I got beat by you know what I felt was you know not a very good guy. And I took my medal. And then at the end, and I threw it in the trash. And I was like, you know, I'm just so angry. And I, he just came up and he just grabbed me. And he brought me over. He's like, there's dudes here who will never be in a position to get that. And never have the opportunity to get that third place. You go back, you get that, and you hang on to that, and you think about it. And uh, to, still, like, to this day, I still think about that, that aspect of it. Right? Like, just, just being in the mix is a reward it is you know something that other people may not ever get the chance to do and whether you win first or win second you know it's nice but at the end you had this opportunity you, you achieve this and so i've taken that with me throughout my life for sure and then the, just the hard work right just you know if you want to get better as a wrestler you, you've got to train you, know, you gotta do it all and so that work mentality i think it's paid out uh, throughout my life, because I find myself now at Ramco, right, which is, you know, the apex job as a teacher, essentially. Sounds like he taught you less about being grateful, you know, for each and every moment. Yeah, it was, and my dad emphasizes that too. Like, my dad was happy with how I did as a wrestler, but his proudest moment was when I won the Sportsmanship Award uh, for the Washington State, and uh, for my, you know, for my district, for my region, and then for the state. And that's what he's most proud of. Like when we talk to my my sons about it. Uh, that's what he tells them. Seems like you've had a lot of just uh, really positive and impactful figures um, in your life, and you seem to recall them in great detail. Uh, if you could meet one historical figure, who would it be and why? Uh, Richard Feynman. He's a, a famous uh, physicist and, and scientist, and he did a, a phenomenal job with explaining really hard concepts really simply. And I see... Uh, a lot of him in Neil deGrasse Tyson. Right? Neil deGrasse Tyson is this, you know, wildly intelligent guy. Um, and there's other people who are probably as smart as him or smarter. But the the power, really, the superpower that he has is that he can explain it. He is capable of communicating those really advanced ideas in a really simple and understandable manner. And that I think, you know, that's who I'd want to hang out with. Is him? This is awesome between Neil and Richard. I'd say either one of them um, are just phenomenal individuals, you know, and as a scientist, we have, I have all this knowledge about all this stuff. And like today we're talking about quantum mechanics with one student, another student's building a basic robot, another student's doing a, a double slit, you know, diffraction and, you know, experiment. And we're just, there's all this data. And sometimes and even like when I'm teaching algebra or algebra two or geometry, it's how do I take this really, you know, this really cool concept that I understand because I've been doing it for 30 years and teach it effectively to a 13 year old. Right? Like how can I, how can I explain it in a way that they'll understand or they'll be able to grasp it? You know, whether that's Gardner's multiple intelligences, you know, different, you know, methods, 
uh, or just being a better communicator. <laughs> Which will serve you well in marriage and fatherhood. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Can we uh, just focus? Uh, it seems like you have a lot of uh, high-level mathematical concepts that are going on in your, in your head uh, consistently. Uh, if you could bring something into existence, something new, something um, novel into existence from the knowledge that you have, what would it be and why? It would probably just be replacing like air conditioning here in Saudi Arabia with geothermal cooling. Like that's probably my biggest thing is we look at, um, you know, climate change is the big impactful thing that's going on in our world for our, you know, not just our generation, but the generation before us right. and those generations after us. You know, one aspect of that is how do we stop using so much fossil fuels, right. you know, to slow down that, that, that curve that we're on. And, and it's part of the robotics project this year, actually, that my students are working on is this idea of, Hey, instead of just, you know, burning natural gas and burning oil uh, to generate electricity to power, all this AC, which is a huge energy consumption. Why not just use geothermal cooling, which just requires a pump hmm. and a hole. You know, it's so that's they've been working on that. And I think that's probably the big thing right now is for me, as I look at the world is, you know, it's cheap, it's easy, it's affordable. It works, especially in America, because we typically live in houses as opposed to apartments. Right. Yeah. And it's a way to just make a big impact. And it's, the world gets warmer and warmer and warmer. You know, it's not like it's going to be less important to have air conditioning. You know, people are going to want more of it and desire more of it. And that's going to require a, a greater burden of burning those natural resources to keep people cool, which is funny. Uh, uh, we're burning the stuff that's going to heat up the planet to keep cool. And it's making it warm. <laughs> yeah. And so that's, I mean, that's, it's out there, but it's just like, that's one thing I would put into like mass production. It's just like, Hey, you build in a house, you build in apartments, geothermal cooling because it's cheap and easy. Can you explain the process of uh, geothermal cooling and how it works? Yeah, sure. So basically, you can take a fluid, and air is a fluid, or typically what they actually use is, what is it? It's a, gosh dang it, windshield wiper fluid because it's rated down to like negative 20 or negative 40, right? So it doesn't freeze up in your car and, and cause damage as it expands. And so you just put that into a tube and basically you're using a little a heat pump and you take in the case of this one you take warm water it's absorbed like heat from the house and you pump it down maybe you know three to six meters down where the temperature in the earth is you know 17 degrees celsius so then this you know, hot liquid is there and it dissipates the heat into the ground and the, so the heat transfers from the liquid into the earth and then that same liquid comes up on the other side of the house and it's cool and you pump it through the house and it pulls in or not absorbs, but the heat transfers from the, the warmer air in the house into the cool of the liquid. And so basically you, that's how you run a geothermal cooling system and the heating works similar. It's just, you run the hole deeper and you go down, you know, 15, 20 meters where it's always 20 degrees or 22 degrees. So now in the winter, when it's, you know, 10 degrees outside, you have this, you know, you're pulling heat out of the earth and put it into the house. And, and so now air conditioning units work by what? Well, there's a, it's a, it's a kind of, it's not too different, but it just requires a lot more energy. So on that system, you just need really a pump and a small heat exchanger to, to run it. And then with air conditioning, you've got a fan, you've got a compression, you're basically turning um, liquid into gas and gas into liquid. And, and this whole process produces a lot of um, 
hot air and not produces hot air, but the, the way the heat is transferred is just taken from the house and then pushed outside. So if you're living in a, and obviously, you know, geothermal cooling really works best with new builds. Um, it's hard to retrofit stuff, uh, apartment buildings, especially with it, especially because they're so tight and compact. Right. But basically the air conditioner just uses a different method. Um, and it uses a lot more energy to make that happen. Mm, so it looks like, it sounds like geothermal cooling would take a little more cost up front to run the piping and things through the walls. Um, but in the long term, it's much more efficient. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a fair statement. And if you look at, you know, like looking at Europe, you know, now they've got that energy crisis right in this winter yeah. with the war in Ukraine with Russia and, you know, this, all their heating's coming from, or not, I shouldn't say, but a majority of their heating's coming from, you know, burning natural gas to generate steam and, and spin a turbine and put electricity in their house so they can, you know, turn on electric heat or to you know, burn it in a furnace at their house. So it's also where you can look at energy independence over time. You know, you want to start building houses with geothermal heating and geothermal cooling in areas where it works. Uh, that's one way to be energy independent. Huh. It's a, or I should say more energy independent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's something that um, I haven't heard in a lot of uh, conversations or at the forefront of any global warming argument. So um, it's a really neat way, especially in these uh, countries that are very hot for long periods of time. Right. You know, and then, you know, it's, it's fun watching my students do the research because they'll do like many little mini labs on it, like to kind of figure out how it works and to explain it as part of their project. Uh, and it's fun to watch them work and do it. And then, you know, go ask some engineers at Ramco. Hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Because Ramco has a whole division of renewable engineers who are, you know, working on wind turbines and solar and all this stuff. Yeah. But it's fun for them to have that resource at hand. It sounds like you're very passionate about this. Um, you're very passionate about the environment and about uh, physics and science as well. I'm definitely passionate about physics and science and, and math. The environment, it's just, it's one of those things, right? It's, we've got to do something. I mean, I work right. at an oil company, right. but <laughs> I also know we've got to do something. Right. right. We've, there's steps we need to take globally. And uh, if we want to not have as big of an impact as it's coming down the line. What, what inspired your passion for science? Man, I just, I always loved science fiction as a kid, just really ate it up and the ideas and concepts. And there's some great fun books I read uh, when I was younger that would always have like an ancillary chapter. How does the warp drive work? How does a, a mass cannon work? How does this or that work in this you know universe? And I always thought that was super cool. And then I had Mr. Evans for chemistry and I had Mr. Crandall, Crandaddy Cool for <laughs> physics in high school. And I was just like, this is it. I want to teach chemistry and physics because this is amazing. Yeah. It sounds like science has kind of uh, driven your life um, and kind of guided you along with family and familial decisions where you wanted to go. Um, if you had to leave a legacy for your children um, and finding that same light for them, what legacy would you want to leave so that they could find their path? Man, just to just to pursue what you love, right? My mom and dad always have this line of, uh, there are many things in life that will catch your eye, but few that catch your heart. Ooh. Pursue those. Ooh. And, you know, just, and the, I would combine that. And the one I, advice I used to give to my seniors who were graduating was, uh, if there's something you want to do, do it. Don't be a coulda, shoulda, woulda. I could have done this. I should have done this. Yeah. I would have done this. No, no, no. Go try it. It's okay if you fail. Yeah. You know, that's, that's part of life. And we learn a lot from that. A lot of value. But go do it and try it. So you say, you know what? I did try that. 
I did, I, I gave him my best shot and I see it in sports. Sometimes, um, some of my buddies got hurt in their, in their high school career and their early college career. Mm. And then they never could quite give it up. Right. They're always, I could have done this. I should have done this. And you're like, well, Hey man, we're like 30 now. Right. Yeah. Like, why are we still, why are we still hung up on the same? And sports could be, you know, you could supplant anything else in there to, you know, I wish I would have learned piano. Why didn't you go right. for it now? And what's cool is the tie in now with like empowerment Tuesdays. Right. Yeah. So we've got these kids out here who are like, ah, oh, I want to learn how to play a electric guitar. Go. I want to learn how to build a, a robot. Go. I want to build this. Or I want to do this. I want to learn how to knit. Yes. <laughs> do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and then be like, oh man, you may not be good at it, but boy, when you see someone with a felted bag walking down the street, you can be like, oh, I know how that took time. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That, that, that is, that's, you are quite good at this, aren't you? Or, you know, whatever the case may be, it gives you, I am terrible at art. I am horrendous, but man, I can appreciate good art. I can appreciate bad art too, but <laughs> it's just, you know, it, it's that idea of, even though it's not my jam, I can still value it and I can still see the skill and passion that went into stuff like that. The same with music, you know, it's, it's with anything. It's just being appreciative of, of what's out there. Oh, man. Well, Mr. Zion, the hustle, Russell, many things have caught my eye. I'm hoping your story would catch the hearts <laughs> of our listeners because you are an, a, a phenomenal individual. Hopefully we'll have more time, maybe at a later date to pick your mind some more. Uh, but we are just so thankful to have you and we shall see you again one day. Right on. All right. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Just To Know You. We would like to thank our amazing tech man, Mr. Kent Arimura, Sterling McDonald for the podcast music, and the SAES community. See you next time. If you know anyone who you think has a great story to tell, we would love to hear about it. Please send an email to either Angela, Darian, or Kent.